Scripture reading is 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. are on a journey. If you are a, f- a believer in Jesus, if you count yourself a Christian, at some point or another, you heard this invitation, come, follow me. And you started following Jesus. And that in its, the very metaphor, the very language there talks about a journey. In fact, in the month of January, we talked about our walk with God, and we, we talked about the speed of God, and that when God showed up in our world, he walked everywhere, that Jesus invited others to walk with him, that God was never in a hurry, was never going fast. He walked three miles an hour was his pace. Um, and so we're on a journey if you are a follower of Jesus. And in talking about it that way, you could easily get the impression that this is like um, an easy kind of thing to do, but it's no stroll in the park. Following Jesus is, is difficult. And there will be and are many obstacles put in our way. There are many things that will tempt us to get off of the main path and onto other kinds of paths that will take us nowhere. Uh, and, and so those dangers really do exist in the journey. And that's why there's so many uh, encouragements in the New Testament to stay on the path and, and to stay untangled from the things that would trip us up. But the reality is the greatest journeys in life are those that are filled with obstacles and dangers. You know, that's what makes the journey memorable. Uh, I was uh, very fortunate as a young person to be involved in Boy Scouts. I was very active in my troop, but we had a really active troop and we would go on a hike almost every month. And I, I can't remember how many hikes. I got some kind of patch for the mile club. I don't know, it was 300 mile club, 500 mile club. I think it gets bigger each year as time goes on, more miles. Um, and so uh, that's supposed to be a joke. Obviously, I'll work on that for the next service. It'll be the 5,000-mile club by then. I don't know. Um, and the, the hike, I don't remember a lot of the hikes, but I remember the time that we were halfway through Tom Sock Trail and were torrential downpour, and we got lost. I remember the time we were on a two-day hike, and the second day we woke up to a surprise snowstorm, eight inches of snow, I remember uh, some injuries that took place. I, I remember those things because those were, at the time, really annoying and difficult, but it's what made the journey memorable. This is a common theme in literature, is it not? 
that were this journey and the dangers in the journey, one of the oldest still read novels in uh, the Christian church is uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you ever read Pilgrim's Progress at one time? All right, a few of you have. All right, 350 years ago, it was written. And it's, a, it's this big allegory. And the main character's name is Christian. And he encounters all kinds of dangers along the way, uh, like the swamp, the quagmire of doubt and fears, the uh, doubting castle. Uh, I'm sorry, the castle of despair, the enchanted ground where he is tempted by complacency. And then, of course, there's the great American classic, The Wizard of Oz. How many of you have seen that? Every hand ought to go up, right? How many times have you seen it is really the question. And Dorothy and her companions are walking the yellow brick road, and they have all kinds of uh, uh, challenges along the way. The first thing is that scary forest where they meet the lion. And then there's the enchanted poppy field where she almost falls asleep and dies at the hands of the wicked witch. And then there were the flying monkeys. Has there ever been a more scary creature created by Hollywood than the flying monkeys? Yeah. And then um, my favorite journey story perhaps is Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, and Frodo and Sam, the hobbits, make their way with the ring of power to destroy it at Mordor and all kinds of dangers along the way. There's that forest where, where Frodo and his friends from the Shire almost die there. There's Weathertop where he gets stabbed by one of the ring waiths and, and there's uh, uh, Shelob's lair. Remember the huge spider? Oh yeah, all kinds of dangers. And then Mordor itself presented perhaps the worst of the dangers. And then, you know, um, just the stories of American pioneers making their way across this country and all of the dangers that they faced and, and all of the things that uh, could stop them and hinder them along the way. The greatest journeys are the ones filled with danger, are the ones filled with difficulty and obstacles. And that's true in the Christian life. Um, a, a theme for this series that we're doing in the month of February comes from a word that Paul uses in his second letter to this young pastor named Timothy. Chapter two, verse four, he, he throws together three different metaphors here. And the, first, the second one is this. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So there he talks about the Christian life as someone who is a soldier. And we know that soldiers cannot get entangled in civilian affairs. That's obvious. But what does that that mean for us? What does it mean to get entangled? What are we entangled by? So what does it mean to to walk the Christian life, to this journey that we're called on and be untangled? Well, Christians through the centuries have spoken of perhaps the three greatest dangers along the way, the three battles that we fight in. And Richard Foster, probably one of the the best commentators on the spiritual life of our generation, wrote a book um, back in 1985. In fact, I got it not long after it came out. My copy is falling apart. Um, And kind of like, you know, me when I'm that that old now. Um, Anyway, Money, Sex, and Power. He's got a new title now, but... uh, That's the title of his book. He starts chapter one saying, the crying need today is for people of faith to live faithfully. This is true in all spheres of human existence, but it's particularly true with reference to money, sex, and power. 
No issues touch us more profoundly or more universally. No themes are more inseparably intertwined. No topics cause more controversy. No human realities have greater power to bless or to curse. No three things have been more sought after are are more in need of a Christian perspective. Now, he wrote that nearly 40 years ago, and it, it, could, have been, it could have been written today. And so um, Jesus recognized these dangers. In fact, interesting, as you've heard, you've been around the crowd, you've heard me say this a number of times, um, fact, Jesus addressed the subject of money more than any other subject except the kingdom of God. There's kingdom of God, and there's money. You know, half of Jesus' parables have to do with teaching us how to deal with money, possessions, and the things of this world. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, there are 14 ethical, there's 14 practices that he lays out for Christians. 11 of them have to do with money, sex, and power. But it was money that he spoke often about because it's one of the things that can entangle us and keep us from successfully completing the journey. And so we're gonna, we're gonna dive deep into this uh, today um, in this series so that we can walk this journey in front of us in a way that uh, leads us to life. And in order to, to fight these battles, in order to encounter these obstacles along the way and to do so successfully, we need God's grace. We can't do this on our own. And so there's, uh, we're gonna sing another song. Would y'all stand? Lord, I need you, perfect song to sing. Let's sing. So uh, in this imagery, this metaphor of the journey that is the Christian life, I think uh, God's calling upon pastors. One of our calls is to keep people out of the ditch because we can fall, we can go in the ditch. We, we can um, get distracted along the way. And perhaps that, all, that begins first with keeping myself out of the ditch. But uh, here in this passage, Paul is encouraging Timothy to teach these things so that the people of God would stay in the journey and stay out of the ditch. So we're gonna look at these verses in 1 Timothy chapter six. We're gonna work our way backwards. Um, we're gonna start with uh, the ditch itself and the problem that uh, arises. And he says this in, in verse 10. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Just pause real quick there. He does not say money is evil. He says the love of money is root. He doesn't say it is the root. It is a root. He doesn't say it's a root of all evil. He says it's many kinds of evil. They start over. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Pause, time out. Where are you gonna hear that perspective outside of a gathering like this? Huh? And a culture that is constantly saying, more, earn more, make more, buy more, get more, accumulate more. Where do you hear that? It's very counterculture. In fact, some of this may fall on your ears as really odd. And quite frankly, in our culture, it is. Let's just be honest. It, it really is, because we're taught to love money. But here he says it's a, it's a problem. Elsewhere, this is called greed. This is one of the words that can be mentioned for this. Again, it's not money. Money's a neutral thing. Although 
Jesus does call it by God. There was a God by the name of Mammon, heard of Mammon. It's the God of money. It, it, um, uh, there are some spiritual components to it, no doubt. But it's the love of it that becomes a real problem. And like I said, our, you know, Richard Foster wrote that book back in 1985, Money, Sex, and Power. And, and, and Christians down through the centuries have identified certain, certain things that um, are a, 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 a problem. They have discovered that certain things are what we call deadly sins. Um, and one of them is greed. In fact, they came up with a list of seven deadly sins. Years ago, I did a series on the seven deadly sins. What makes a sin a deadly sin is that it gives, it gives birth to so many other sins. If you were with us last August, uh, we talked about um, anger and being unoffendable. And we looked at anger as one of the deadly sins. Greed is the second. They, they actually listed them. And they said, here's the worst. Anyone want to guess what the worst one was? Anyone? Pride. Pride. Um, that's probably why you didn't want to answer, because you didn't want to appear proud, right? <laughs> I get it. You're just holding back a little bit, being humble. Good. That's good. Uh, for all kinds of, if you want to read a fascinating understanding of why pride is the greatest of all sins, read C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. But greed, number two. Greed, number two. Um, one of, uh, Colin, who's on staff here, a graphic artist, put this little design. You already got kind of a preview of it. Put it up there. This is uh, all the things that greed gives birth to. Selfishness, jealousy, envy, cheating, quarreling, neglect of good causes, sarcasm, betrayal friends, on and on. And you see it. Actually, this is just a very small list. If we, this is like a weed growing out of the ground. If we wanted to capture all of the things that come from the love of money and greed, I think we'd have to have like a sequoia with all of the branches. Next time when you're going through the newspaper and you're reading about crimes or terrible things that happen, look at how many there's an issue with money involved. It's, it's immense. The, the quest for the love of the drive to have more money is a, is a deadly sin. And that's why our forebears in the faith said, this is the number two one deadly, very, very deadly. So it's deadly because of, it gives birth to all kinds of evil. It's the only time, by the way, in the New Testament that a particular sin is listed, to all, is connected with all kinds of evil. And it's, it's the love of money. It's deadly because it becomes an alternative path. It becomes the path that people walk on. They live on this path to get more money. And, I, and it's for this reason that Jesus addresses it so often. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said a passage that many people could probably quote, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and Love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I know we like to think we can have it both ways, but Jesus says you can't serve both. They have competing demands. Money competes for your heart. Jesus said elsewhere, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And if the love of money has a heart, then God can't have our heart. And um, it's deadly for this reason. Notice that he says, 
very rarely will you ever see someone, yeah, I'm going to leave the Jesus path and I'm gonna go over here to the money path and pursue that. Notice what he says, many have, what? Wandered away from the faith. Tends to be a gradual thing. It just slowly but surely gets control. That's why we have to be diligent in reflecting and looking at what's driving us. And he says, they've, those who have a love of money, and by the way, here, he's, he's talking to the Christian poor. He's not talking to the wealthy in this passage. That's the next passage. He's talking to the Christian poor, those who want to get rich. All right? He says, they wander from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. You've seen it. We've all seen it. The the heartache that a drive for more money and stuff can bring into a person's life. It's it's immense. Years ago, I was um, hanging out for the morning with a a Christian leader I had an immense amount of respect for. Uh, He was somebody who came to faith late in life and, or later in life and had been very successful in business, had done very well in business. Um, and then he gave himself totally to Jesus. And anyway, we would work together on some projects now and then. He's been deceased for a number of years now. But as we're driving through town, I remember where I was because this conversation will always stay with me. I'm down on South Kings Highway coming up towards uh, like where Schnooks is. He says, Ron, you would not believe how much time. He was... He was very prosperous. How much time I have to spend protecting my money, defending it, securing it, hiring lawyers. He says, it, it bec- it's, you would not believe what a burden it can be. And with great pastoral sensitivity, I said, well, if you'd like to relieve yourself of some of that burden. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. If you know my story, you've heard me over the years say my dad died when I was just 16 months old. So I grew up without a father. And my mom was not one to talk a whole lot about family stuff. I knew he was a barber. And I knew that um, like three years before he died, he um, opened a second barber shop. And they had a massive heart attack and died. And I've wondered... You know, he just got married. His marriage to my mom was his second marriage. Did my dad work himself into an early grave? I don't know. Did that second shop just... Did it do him in? I don't know. You all know people. Maybe you've been that person. Worked yourself the ill health. When Paul says they pierce themselves with many pangs, he's not speaking metaphorically there. So he's saying, stay out of the ditch. Then he he really piles up some stuff here in verse 8, the dangers that that exist. He says um, in in verse 9, he says, but those who desire to be rich, remember he's talking to the Christian poor, 
those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and a many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. There's three doublets there, three couplets. First is temptation and a snare. A snare. Now, the NIV puts it a trap. Wait a minute. <laughs> trap? That means someone set a trap. Yeah. Paul really believed this. We Christians really believe this. In, in chapter three, he identifies the person who set this trap. Chapter three, uh, verse seven, he's talking about qualifications for leaders. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Second Timothy chapter um, two, verse 26, he says something similar. Talks about a snare. Just read off the screen. They may come to their senses and escape from the snares of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I know that may just hit some of you as like fairy tale kind of stuff. We really do believe as Christians that there is a real spiritual entity that is thoroughly evil that seeks to devour. One place it's called a roaring lion seeks to devour. And people can be trapped and ensnared. There are spiritual realities at work here, friends, that are bigger than just money and material possessions. Those become the hook, the bait. He says, senseless and harmful desires. Oh my, we could make a list of that. And ruin and destruction. Jesus talked about this. He says, there's a, there's a broad way. A lot of people walk that way, but it leads to destruction. There is a narrow path, and few there are that find it, but it leads to life. And so Jesus talked about this and warned about this, this danger that the things of this world can capture us. I, when I was thinking of this, I, I said my first job is to keep myself out of the ditch. A pastor who I had tremendous respect for, Another part of the country led one of our largest United Methodist churches, highly respected. I went to, to visit his church back in 06. And somehow or another, he got caught up in some kind of investment thing. And they were selling investments, and it was based on false promises. And this remarkably successful, wonderful pastor, man of God, is in jail today. So when Paul says ruin and destruction, he's not speaking metaphorically. So there is the ditch and there's the danger. But he begins this whole talk by, talk, by mentioning the guardrails. Verse six, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. Godliness here just means an authentic Christian life. Authentically living with the heart open and pure before God. So an authentic Christian life with contentment is great gain. Last month, as we talked about the, the, uh, the walk with God, we looked at, at Psalm 23 
When David begins and says things that hardly ever get said in our day, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Contentment is such a rare thing, isn't it? Um, and yet it is, it is a beautiful thing when we have it. Because no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how you're doing, you're at peace when you have contentment. Without contentment, you're just kind of driven along by whatever's happening in your life at that time. Now, Paul, man, he, he draws a pretty narrow um, definition of what we really need in life. And you're not gonna like this. If we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. Now, he probably implied in there is housing. He's not proposing we'll be content being homeless. In fact, all the studies on happiness have shown that once you get out of destitution, destitute poverty, that the degree of happiness between a poor person who has food and clothing and shelter, maybe transportation, and the very wealthy is just small degrees. In fact, the, there's, a, there's a point, and again, I could refer you to research, you wanna see it, when you get so much money that actually greater degrees of wealth begin to drive down your level of happiness. So with these, we'll, we'll be content. Now, I'd be honest, most of us really don't believe that most of the time because we're in a culture that tells us that's impossible. That if you don't buy this, wear this, drive this, live in this, you can't possibly be content. Not until you get the thing I'm selling. And, and yet here's Paul saying this. I was once asked, what, what's our blind, what's a, what is our blind spot in America? Well, I don't know. By definition, I probably can't see it. <laughs> right? I'll hazard a guess. I think it's greed. I don't think we see it. That's why Jesus said, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Most people don't, you just don't see it in your life. Um, and yet the evidence for this is all around. American kids, mine and, the, and grandkids, okay, included, I'm not putting myself in a different category, use language that other kids around the world never use. They're bored. Kind of funny, isn't it? Here's a statistic put on the screen. By the time a typical child is nine years old, they have 342 toys, enough to fill 23.7 big trash cans. My grandkid, my, my, I think my, my 10-year-old has more than that. They typically play with about 10 of them. Um, yeah, so we learned this early on, don't we? Contentment's such a hard thing. Tell me, who's more content? A millionaire or a man with 12 kids? The man with 12 kids, because he doesn't want any more. Got you there, didn't I? <laughs> this is one, this is what we, we have to wrestle with this, friends. And I'm there, I'm, I'm in this, this fray with you. Contentment is a hard thing to find in our culture. So rare is it. 
And he has one simple argument. Here's why you should, in this, in this passage at least, here's why you should be content. He says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Your life is a journey between two moments of nakedness. The moment you're born and the moment you die. So Paul says, be content because you didn't bring anything into the world. You're not going to take anything out. You have food and clothing. Again, I know you don't believe that. I get it. But can you imagine what value this would add to your life to have this beautiful thing called contentment where you can honestly say, I'm enough. I'm happy. I'm good. I'm good. Um, You see, you and I were created to know God. God is infinite. God is infinite which means we have an infinite capacity for a desire. If you try to, uh, to satisfy those desires with material things, you'll never be satisfied because the, the, the hole in your heart is infinite. Only God can fill it. And I believe for all of eternity, eons upon eons upon eons, we will be filled to the fullness of all of the fullness of God and continue to grow in joy and his fullness. But if you try to fill it with other stuff, the things God's created, which you'll say in the next passage that are good, good things, but we're never meant to satisfy that, only God. So let me, let me go to another passage here as I wrap up. Philippians, Paul talks about contentment again beginning with chapter four, verse 11, he says, he's um, noted that they wanted to help him. He had some physical financial needs himself he's, and they wanted to help him, but they weren't able to. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Twice, Paul says there, I've learned. Contentment is not something that you get by osmosis. It's not something that you kind of just gradually, um, you know, kind of stumble into one day. You have to learn it. I have to learn it. It is a learned state of being. It's it's, It's an attitude of the heart. At some point in our life, we have to ask ourselves, is, con- is contentment created in my heart or is it the result of how things are going? If, if contentment for you and me is based on how things are going in life, most of the time we're not gonna be content because there's something wrong. So Paul says, I've learned contentment when I'm, abounding. He's talking financially when things are great. And then when I have nothing in every, any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being content. But does he say he just does this by willpower? No. He says, I can do this through Christ who strengthens me. This is part of the journey. 
allowing the grace of God to strengthen you for the journey so that you not get entangled by the stuff of this world, which will draw you into a ditch. Back in that passage we, where I'm taking the series from, when Paul talks about being entangled, he starts off that chapter by saying, you to Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Notice that's a passive thing. Be strengthened. God will strengthen you. God will give you grace if you will put yourself in a position. Lord, teach me contentment. Show me the way. I yield to that. If you do that, it says you will be strengthened so that one, so that you'll be able to say, no matter what circumstances I'm in, no matter what's going on in my life, no matter how is things are financially or uh, health-wise or anything else, I've learned the secret of being content. Only God can do that for us. So let's pray. Father, would you come right now? Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you teach us in the midst of this culture where we're never allowed to rest and always driving for the next thing? Would you teach us contentment? Jesus, would you strengthen us? Or we want to we walk the journey with you. We don't want to get distracted or on an alternative path or rabbit trail or any kind of detour. We want to stay close behind you all the way. Give us grace so that we're not entangled by the things of this world, but we're given strength to to know the beauty and the joy and just the utter peace of contentment. Come, Holy Spirit, and do this in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're so glad you tuned in today. If you like this video, don't forget to give it a thumbs up and share it with anyone you think could benefit. We're excited about all the content we have coming up and can't wait for you to see it. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss out. If you're curious about LaCroix or if you're looking to take the next step on your journey with Jesus, check out LaCroixChurch.org. We hope to see you again soon.